0: Books Network, the African American Studies category. Today I have with me author Michelle Quo, the author of A Teacher, a Student, and a Life Changing Friendship Reading with Patrick. Hello and welcome, Michelle.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor.
0: So I'm intrigued to hear your story. You're an Asian American, and it's Black literature that taught you about American history. I'm also a teacher. I'm Black, and I learned through American history, so I've, your story is very intriguing, and I'm sure it's the just position, one culture learning from another culture. So tell us more.
1: Thanks. And that means a lot coming from you. Um, so I grew up, you know, in Western Michigan, uh, where Asian Americans were very few, and it was the nineteen eighties. Nobody used the phrase Asian American. My parents didn't. My school didn't. And I think it's I, w- I wish I could just, you know, observe myself growing up because I, I must have I must have been confused and not known where I fit in. And it's really interesting to me that I was so drawn to African American literature while I read I read so much in high school. I read civil rights history and Martin Luther King. That I read Malcolm X and I read uh, James Baldwin, *Invisible Man*. Zora Neale Hur- Hurston, and I didn't consciously understand that I was being drawn to books that articulated a racial consciousness. I didn't, you know, really understand that. This was my way of asserting my Americanness by feeling close and passionate about African American history. I didn't understand that it came from this void of Asian American history. You know, I didn't read any Asian American writers growing up, besides Joy Luck Club, um, and certainly there were no Asian heroes on television or stories of people from Taiwan, which is the country where my parents were from. It's so funny, you know. I mean. Uh, the, the only Asian person on TV, uh, was Connie Chung. And so there were all these, like, uh, my mom would have me like prepare these little broadcasts, like, uh, you know, just pre- prepare, prepare five minute broadcasts, Like I was some kind of, um, uh, person gearing up to be a TV broadcaster. But my point being that, uh, you know, by the time I went to college, I, Thought of myself as being American through my connection through African American history, and I didn't really question that and start to search more of my immigrant and Taiwanese background until much later, until the past five years of my life. Quite honestly, until until when I was writing this book. That makes sense because you, um, in the book, you you pitch
0: fearless black American against a fearful Asian American. You know, so it's like, um, it's like you're, as Amy Tan would say, becoming Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> Yours would be, right, exactly. Twine, um, it will be um, different for you. So in this becoming Michelle. <laughs> 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 yeah, exactly. Because that's what it is really. Why do you, um, how
1: did you see that? The fearless Black American
0: and the fearful. Because those are two opposite
1: words. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I love that you, I love that you found that con- contrast. Because um, it, it's it's so interesting how a person growing up uncertain of their identity often tends to react in opposition to other ideas. So. I had a view, a stereotype of Asian Americans as being fearful, as not speaking up. And this is partly from societal perceptions, um, but it's also from, you know, it's also from immigrant parents who grew up in an authoritarian government in Taiwan, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, and there's no such thing as you know, dissent and free speech or there weren't professions like, you know, journalists or activists. So my parents did have a fearful attitude about what it meant to pursue different uh, professions and to speak out. When I was reading Black literature, so many of these memoirs of African American men and women were about finding a voice, about finding courage to speak out. And those were the those were the stories that I grew up with, and because there were no stories of, of that happening for Asian Americans, in my mind they were you know they were the powerful ones who were part of history, and we were we Asians were not part of history, um, and that binary is is I continue to believe in that binary even when I go down to Arkansas to be a teacher, you know I don't think of myself. As a typical Asian American, I think of myself as reacting against um, the typical Asian American. I really like the fact that you were so honest in the book about
0: teaching because teaching is hard. And in the chapter of The Raisin and the Sun, you really are upset, you know, with what's happening and how it's happening, and you're you're not happy with the standards. What happens when you unearth a raisin in the sun and it changes the student perspective and it seems to have changed your teaching?
1: I love that you brought up raisin and sun and this moment of hope, basically, in a lot a series of, you know, missteps and mistakes. It's so powerful when you find a text that students love. It it it, it it, you know I thought that they would love all these other texts, powerful texts that I brought them. Um, but raising a son, they they related to their grandma. The grandma is, is in raising a son is this woman from Mississippi who um, is really religious, who is strict, who is loving, who is a pillar in the family. And the students, a lot of them recognize that grandma because they a lot of them have been raised by grandmas that are similar. Um, and the language was, they could, they could, they could, they could feel how powerful and lyrical and real it was, you know? And then when they actually had roles to play, it brought out their creativity and their, their, their passions. Um, I, I, I am so grateful to that, to that book for, to Lorraine Hansberry for, for writing it. Um, and, it, it's teaching is so funny because sometimes all you need to do is just be a conduit and to find the text that the that the kid will love. You know, I mean, there's so many hard things about teaching, but there is an element of magic and matchmaking to it.
0: Yes, that there is, which you do again with. I was I enjoyed that the I am poem. I am, I feel, I wonder, I hear, I see, I understand, I say, I dream, I try, I hope, I want, I pretend, I cry. What a way to reach your students to have to answer those questions, right? So um, that that also changed the dynamics of your classroom. Did you get everything you were hoping for?
1: Uh, I, 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 love that assignment because it really it's hard ask you know if you asked me to do it I'd find it really hard to to talk about what you know the the poems like I pretend what do you wonder about um, what you know it really asks people to admit to having an inner life basically and for especially kids who have done been fed grammar sheets for most of their schooling, who haven't had access to arts and music programs, who haven't had access to mental health counselors, who often have experienced some traumatizing things either at school um, or in their neighborhood or at home, just to have a space where they are encouraged To share um, about themselves and where the poem is better the more you share, right? And I think that fundamental idea of like your life is worth writing about your life has dignity. I feel like that poem communicates that and not everybody, you know, I I was really careful. I don't want people who were private to feel like they had to write, but then I would ask those people to write from the perspective of their mother or their grandmother, or in one heartbreaking case, um, the point of view of his brother who had died. And those private students really opened up to that exercise because they viewed it as a way of honoring the people in their family, and as a way to show off how much they could imagine themselves into the perspectives of others. I'm really, I don't know, I, I just, I just, I felt thrilled because after they worked and worked on these poems, we, I took them all to Kinko's. I mean, I took all of the the, the copies of the poems, The it goes and blew them up to poster size and then put them all around the classroom along with their pictures so that when they walked into the classroom, they would feel that they owned the classroom, that it really belonged to them. You're giving me a moment of um, the
0: movie Freedom Riders um, with uh, Hilary Swank. Have you ever seen that? I actually haven't, and I want to. How is it? It's absolutely you. <laughs> <laughs> Only... The critics will say she's another white savior in the black neighborhood, but you're not, that's the difference, you know. Um, and the movie she does, she enters into this classroom with these students who all they know is fighting, you know, and she introduces them to this diary and gives them a voice. And when I hear what you have done with just this simple poem, free write, you know, this free write poem, I Am It's amazing you have and so it's a movie for you to watch you know one day when you get time because if you're teaching now there's really no extra time yeah, you know <laughs> yeah exactly you know. Like swamped in papers <laughs> yep I know I know it's just like it's, I say paper grading is like never-ending laundry It just keeps on coming there's like no I to do it no, I don't. Exactly. Exactly. So for the Christmas break, then you can watch it, but you will, you will see yourself. You will see. And she takes the students and she does these amazing things with them, you know. And just like you blowing up their poem and placing it on the wall, making them feel so much better about themselves um, when nobody else does. When nobody else does. Um, what I also like about your book. Um, I love writing in notebooks, diaries, and journals. And on page 33, you begin to talk about your own notebook, <laughs> your own notebook. And this is another thing that got me to freedom writers. I'm like, oh my goodness, she's now, you ask the children to be intimate and open, and then there you are very much doing the same thing. You know, so I, I want to just read a little bit of this part because it says so much about you. My notebooks are strange, filled with often contradictory self-exhortations and resolutions. Be kind. Don't be afraid to be mean. Sometimes the notes read as if I had joined a cult. Change is happening every day. No spiritual work is ever wasted. And there were notes that felt directly relevant. Work tirelessly. If, as you are going to sleep at night, you remember, I did not do what I ought to have done. Arise at once and do it. It's like you're on your own spiritual journey. That doesn't sound too quirky with your students and
1: with this teaching. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're the first person who's ever brought up uh, my own notebooks, and they are crazy looking. (laughs) Just, you know, it's so interesting. I think when, I think there are moments, intense moments of our lives where we, we believe we can be perfect, you know, and it's not it's not about saving other people it's just it's just about doing what 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 we're meant to do on earth, which is to help people you know and to not lose sight of that and to not seek more more frivolous like escapist comforts and usually these these moments happen earlier in our lives when we will not accept less from ourselves, you know, and that was those notebooks really capture that time in my life. I mean, I think I like to think I'm a little easier on myself now, but I, I also like that younger self that wouldn't be easy on herself. You know, um, I, I like all the only thing that mattered and it was the only thing that mattered was like to live up to what I was capable of doing. Um, and I think, I think about it now because, like, um, you know, my parents weren't aging at the time. I wasn't thinking about finding a partner or a family or anything. The only thing that mattered was being really good at my job. And being really good at your job got you to law school. So I was
0: reading and I'm like, she's applying to law school. She's going to leave the kids. You know, this is how I'm feeling. She's going to leave. Is she going to get accepted? What's going to happen when she goes to law school? And it's amazing what happens when you go to law school. Does that when the relationship with Patrick? Tell us a little bit about Patrick.
1: Yeah, so Patrick is a 15-year-old kid who I met my second year of teaching, um, and he was really bright and quiet. He took to silent reading immediately. He broke up fights. Like, I saw him jump in between these two girls who were fighting, and he got knocked to the ground when that happened. He just, he wasn't, he wasn't, a kid who fought, you know, he, he just wasn't, it wasn't his personality. He was a kid who wanted to learn. He had one major problem, um, that was attendance. He like just didn't come to school sometimes. So I was like really, you know, gung ho. I just like would go to his house and be like, Hey, why didn't you come to school? And miraculously he would just start to come because an adult had asked him. So he started to do really well in my class. He started to come every day and he got this most approved improved award at the end of the year. He was in eighth grade because um, he'd been held back a couple of years in the past. At the same time, I was applying to law school. Um, I'm like not proud of it. I, I know that there are huge polarizing teacher debates about, about uh, teach for America as a program and whether it, creates more turnover but I will say that you know I want to have considered teaching if I hadn't been for their program and that I wanted to stay longer and there are many amazing teachers who come through that program who have stayed in the delta who have stayed as teachers I wasn't one of them Um, and I was really embarrassed about writing the book because I knew it would look like I I don't know I just I just didn't like how it looked or maybe how it is just to leave teaching to leave the delta and to go take this more conventional route. Um, but I also wanted to put that kind of humanness and disapp- like disappointing quality of myself like on the page, you know, cuz that's just what's real. And I went to law school, and that's when I found out 3 years when I was about to graduate that Patrick had gotten into a fight and killed someone. And I was totally devastated. I didn't believe it because Patrick just wasn't a kid who got into a fights. I didn't understand that if you grow up in a poor neighborhood, of course you'll, you can get swallowed up and sucked in, you know, you have to fight, you have to spiritually fight really hard to stay out of it. Um, and so after I graduated from law school, I went back to see him and to see how he was doing. I applauded you for that. <laughs> I,
0: I did. I was reading and I said, this is completely awesome. That was, um, and then you guys developed a relationship and there you teach Patrick. some. Um, I don't want to give it away. I want the people to pick up the book and read it and find out how this relationship builds and what you teach Patrick, you know, as well as yourself. And I love the, um, I think the book is extraordinary. It has a lot of great teaching techniques. It has a lot of history about it. Thank you so much. It has a lot of humanness in it. Um, And what I will ask you is, how
1: does Reading with Patrick fit into African-American studies? It's so interesting because... There's a really straightforward way in which it fits in. Um, it's about the rural South. It's about the people who stayed behind, who were left behind. We hear more and more about the Great Migration and the six million African Americans who moved west and north, but we hear less often about those who weren't able to leave often, not always, but often they tend to be people with fewer resources and fewer contacts with the outside world. And the Delta today is still majority black, still poor, still segregated. And the people are the the descendants of those who didn't make it out during the Great Migration. Um, Some of them are people who went and then came back because they were disappointed, but many others are, you know, those who stayed behind. So in this really straightforward way it's it's about the descendants of slaves and sharecroppers who still live in the rural south you know and how they live um, how, criminal justice and education there but i guess it in a, in a in a way that's that's more personal it's it's about interracial um Bonds and relationships. It's about attempts at interracial solidarity. Like we still rarely see an Asian American and an African American in the same room, and there are all of these juxtapositions that we create and then we then have to collapse. So I set them up in the book, and you you um, so insightfully pointed them out. You know that the 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 fearful Asian versus the the fearless African American hero. Um, Another is uh, the, the voluntary immigrant's child versus the involuntary migrant's uh, descendant, you know. Um, and the relationship of immigrants to African Americans, which is such a poignant and painful one because when my parents came to visit me in this middle-of-nowhere town in Arkansas that, you know, had no coffee shop and had all these boarded-up houses they were, they were so afraid. They were just like, what are you, why are you here? We left Taiwan and we came to this country so that you wouldn't have to like live in a place like this. Like this is the kind of place we would leave. And just the idea of the identity of an immigrant as being somebody of my parents as being people who leave and climb, climb higher, you know, and then the identity of, Somebody like Patrick, who has to learn, has to learn about the history of slavery and violence. I think I'm really interested in how African American studies is becoming more, more and more institutional, which is good, right? It's something that people had to fight for 40 years ago, and now it's part of an institution. But what that also means is that um, people grow up everybody grows up with a sense of african-american history's relationship to the u.s and african-americans role um you know the original sin of slavery and i think when you place an asian-american interlocutor in that story it's really interesting to think about what doesn't get canonized you know um I feel like I'm rambling here, Angela. I don't know if if I'm making sense. Yeah. (laughs) I like, maybe I haven't quite figured it out. I'm like, oh, I'm trying to figure out what I was trying to figure out is like to talk more. just Like, why? I guess what i was trying to say is that when I was growing up, some African-American literature was just starting to be canonized. And there was no Asian-American literature at all. And that there's something weirdly liberating about not having any, like it was wrong, but it's also liberating about not having any Asian American history at all because I could find myself in so many different things, you know? And then in my classroom, when I was teaching, you know, I was a product of, you know, like a progressive education. I was trying to, but I was trying to force all of this African American literature to, into my students Without like recognizing that they were so individual in their needs, some people wanted it, liked it, thirsted after. But other people wanted to read about Japanese haikus or a kung fu novel or yes. or about the world. And and there's the, like I I like forgot that that was a fundamental freedom that they had, and that was actually weirdly the freedom that I had when I was growing up because there was no Asian American history at all. I'm not advocating that we not have Asian American history. but I'm just saying that like sometimes we forget how individual um, and mysterious each person is. And that is, that's like partly what I discovered as a teacher, which is really counterintuitive. Um, It's counterintuitive because we want to be so progressive and respectful towards like the African-American canon. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. It
0: makes perfect. You know, it makes perfect sense because when I'm, teaching, I always try to make, especially when it's literature, I always try to make a, or even if it's writing, I always try to make us go around the world. And therefore, I always find myself with Amy Tan's mother tongue so we can see the difficulties that she has. And then we might go to a Malcolm X autobiography so that we can begin to weave Mm -hmm. uh, the cultures that we can, what we try to say is it doesn't really matter what culture we have. We all have this shared experience, you know? And so I understand what, how you see it. Like if there's no canon. And now really there has been canon. I mean, Amy Tan is canonized. Ha Jen is canonized, you know. Um, Maxine Tom, that's it, Maxine. And there's another uh, lady, she's a poet and her name is not coming to me at this moment. And so, yeah, so now the dynamics change. So you've entered, yeah, so you've entered a great world and you made a great space you know, for yourself to teach and see things differently. And not only did Patrick learn, but Michelle learned. Exactly. I think it was great. Oh, this was a wonderful. This was wonderful. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule, because I know what it's like when you're teaching and scheduling in between. As I- Oh, my gosh. It's crazy, right? I know.
1: Yeah. Are you kidding, though? Thank you for reading my book so insightfully and warmly and generously, and then for taking the time to talk to me about it. I'm I'm the one who's really grateful. Indeed, I
0: enjoyed this. I'm uh, hoping to take a few parts of your book and incorporate it into my syllabus. Oh, that's so <laughs> which is, nice. Which is uh, <laughs> which speaks volumes. So you have a great day and an excellent thanksgiving um if uh yeah we're we're i'm gonna stop this from recording